I happen to love the name The People of the Book, given to us by Muslims who recognized in our forebearers their propensity for reading, for interpreting Torah. We then did something that other minorities have done. We took a label given to us by others and repurposed it into a name redolent with ethnic pride. We are the people of the book, smart, well-read, well-educated. Am HaSefer, the people of the book. It's portable, it's adaptable, most of all it's democratic, offering a way in for anybody. You do not need to have Jewish parents in order to become a Jew. What you do need is to know our book. Am HaSefer, the people of the book, presents a remarkable conception of who we are. To be of a book, to be born from a book, to be not of a land, but of a book. And if we are of a book, our perpetuation, our creativity hinges on a single action, reading. But one of our challenges is, is that we are the people of a book that many of us do not know how, nor have any inclination to read. Our disengagement with our own book stems in great part from the hesitancy, even the fear, on the part of rabbis, teachers, and parents to delve into the complexity of the origins of Torah and to incorporate into teaching and learning essential facts. Consequently, too many of us were educated in religious schools that felt like separate worlds. We'd live in what I think of as the round world, and then two, four, or six hours a week, or even more, we'd enter a different world that felt flat, where questions were prized, but the answers often seemed basic, moralistic, unsatisfying. So what I want to offer are six guidelines with commentary, after all, this is a Jewish talk, <laughs> for teaching and learning Torah that have successfully engaged our fellow people of the book with the sacred practice of reading Torah. And I don't even know if I should call them guidelines. I'm thinking better would be free lines or free ways, even permissions. And so what I'm about to say might provoke discomfort in you, which is okay. I mean, not that I want to cause you to be uncomfortable, but I think some of our most important learning happens only after we've struggled through discomfort and incorporated into our thinking new ideas. So here is permission number one. Let's start teaching Torah in ways that reflect our round world selves. In our religious schools and in our day schools, we continue to perpetuate a multi-generational educational problem that begins something like this. When we teach children that our book was created in ways different from all other books, we are essentially teaching them that all of the skills they need to read and interpret every other book are irrelevant when they come to read our book. When you can't read a book, you don't read a book. And an unread book is an irrelevant book. And many Jewish children stop trying to read our book around the age of 13. Some of us might pick up our book again in college or thereafter, but by that point, our sophisticated understanding of so many other things dwarfs our ability to read our own book. And so for many of us, when we open up the Torah 
It makes us feel, once again, like children. Which brings me back to what today's greatest scholars of the Bible are teaching about the Torah. Here's number two. The Torah was not written about us. The Torah was written by other Jews, earlier ones, our ancestors, the ancient Israelites. The Torah is about them, about their relationship with God and about their world. Now, for some of you, this should be helpful and freeing information. If you don't like a God who tells a father to offer up his son as a sacrifice, no worries. That story was not originally intended for you. If you don't like some of the laws in the book of Leviticus, do not worry. Those laws were for a different time and a different place. Which brings me to rule number three. If you read about something in the Torah that can't happen, then it didn't happen. Contrary to what many of us were taught, the Torah does not recount history. Rather, it is an artifact of history, a compendium of laws, memories, metaphors, and myths. Now, in this day and age, the word myth is often used as a synonym for lie. But I want to offer a different definition, one that's more productive and pertinent for all of us. It goes like this. Myths are metaphors told as stories. Myths are true, just not literally so. And if we can read our sacred narratives through this lens, through this definition, we will liberate ourselves from the misguided effort to try and square science with religion. That story of creation that's told in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, it is a carefully constructed myth whose authors wanted to convey messages about the power of God and the centrality, even the supremacy of Shabbat. Myths are true, just not literally so. And perhaps our most powerful myth is that one about a people who left Egypt and journeyed to a mountain and there became bound to a book. Here's four. Without the Torah, there are no Jews because the Torah contains the template for Jewish collective memory. Collective memory is our popular way of remembering the past and conveying its lessons. Without a past, we have no present. Without knowing our past, we will have no future. And Jews wonderfully convey our past through the telling and reading of stories. This brings me to number five, which is a bit more complicated, so please listen carefully. We need to know some of our ancient history in order to refine the lessons of collective memory. Collective memory is pedagogically powerful, but it tends to oversimplify the past. It takes what is messy and makes it neat. And collective memory, like our own memories, is often incorrect. A knowledge of history is a helpful corrective to collective memory. It helps us from getting too big for our britches. Where collective memory conveys that the Torah is unique, history shows us that it was innovated from older forms. And where collective memory insists that we are God's chosen people, archaeologists have shown us that the sacred texts of all ancient religions say pretty much the same thing. History is not the enemy of collective memory, but it refines it, tempers it. And collective memory, so helpfully, enables us to turn our knowledge into action. 
Which brings me to my sixth and final guideline. It goes like this. Sanctity is not inherent to a text. What makes the Torah sacred is that over a period of several hundred years, thousands of years ago, our ancestors wrote the Torah and we still read it. And through reading it across generations, we have not only perpetuated ourselves, we have flourished. So let's teach this and these five other guidelines for reading the Torah. And although it might seem hard, I promise you it's easier than it seems. But if we can do it, we will create doers of Torah who are fueled by our myths, who are nourished by our book.